that's my job is is bringing those tensions together. Uh, the Marsh Collective, we're for those of y'all who don't know, um, we are an interesting thing. So my me and my family feel implicated to this little place, Opelika, Alabama. We have over the last 20 years uh, restored over 300 historic properties here. We retain about 200 uh, historic properties within 10 blocks in our downtown. And we, <laughs> we believed in this town when no one else did. Awesome, Marsh. Welcome to the show. Thanks for being with us today. Well, thank you for having me from all the way from sunny Opelika, Alabama. Man, it is sunny. Before the show, you told me it's uh, a cool 70, balmy 70 degrees there in December. It is delightful. Uh, I, I admittedly did not get the yard work I was planning to get done in autumn because I spent a month in Italy and so, um, which was not terrible, but uh Man, we are blessed to have it warm enough to get out there and actually do something this time of year. Wow. Well, I'm excited about today's show. Uh, you and I met in Santa Barbara recently at the Redemptive Real Estate Conference, the first ever of its kind. And I was sitting at your table and you were the speaker on the last morning. And I was absolutely captivated, not only by your blazer and sock and shoe combination, which were amazing, um, we should talk about that as well, but by what you shared and how you conveyed and communicated the, what you're doing is just so different and unique. And it really stood out among the whole, amongst the whole weekend. And uh, there were some great speakers there, but I loved what you shared. So I invited you on the show. Well, thank you for having me. I, uh, I find that the, the disco ball sequin tuxedo jacket mismatch socks and uh and metallic gold shoes does make a uh, a little bit of an entrance at the real estate conferences it, it was really it was an amazing event though i tell you the so i was speaking there on on hospitality and putting hospitality in your business which is an enormous passion of mine and uh i was just amazed how receptive that room was i mean if you went and told the layperson that you had a room full of real estate professionals and multifamily guys and asset managers and fund managers and that they were going to respond to someone, you know, kind of rousing them to entertain people in their homes and put hospitality in how they deal with their vendors. I I don't think you would uh, find a lot of people who would have expected the response. I mean, I just, the whole, literally from the time I got off the stage until we left, it was just solid people telling me these incredible stories of putting hospitality and, and love into what they do and what really is often an unsexy business. Hmm. Yes. Let's start with your email signature. Oh, yes. Third J. Nelson Marsh III, Polymath in Residence, Lead Hospitality Consultant, Marsh Collective. Give us an overview of what all of that means. Wow, that's a good one. Okay, well, I bought one of those lordships online because I've always, <laughs> I've always thought nobility was a little. What is bit it for silly. a woman to buy? I gotta buy one of those. It, it would be a ladyship. I am. It's so like mad. sixty dollars, and you know, I mean, the other thing is like Madonna's name isn't Madonna. Like you can call yourself whatever you want, and I wanted to be a lord. It looked fancy. 
And uh, and now when I book things, people, you know, they're they're always very prompt and and on with it. So it really helps with like with uh, booking appointments and restaurants. So um, so anyway, I bought this title and uh, I did, I just thought it was a lot of fun. And um, anyway, so I put it on my email signature. I am the polymath in residence, which is a title I gave myself. Uh, for anyone out there listening who's in a family business, I am the oldest. I am the uh, kind of the scion um, or progenitor in uh, in our family business. My parents are very, very much first generation wealth and entrepreneurs, and uh, and so I have a lot of hats. And it was funny here recently. I had a day where in one day I wrote this rousing that uh, we have these documents I create called love letters a sort of rousing concept idea to present to somebody and then I was helping fix a spreadsheet and then later that afternoon I was out driving our big diesel truck ripping trees out of the ground so so I just finally had to say I do a lot of stuff um and I am the lead hospitality consultant there. So my most of my professional experience outside of the family business and indeed within it has been in the hospitality industry. I, I built and ran the largest by the glass wine bar in the world in my early 20s. And uh, that was an adventure. I'm happy to talk about it if you want. But, um, but anyway, coming back into the business a few years ago, uh, I really just had this heart for tying in the disparity between these, you know, capital conversations and construction and development conversations, and then the the soup to nuts nature of a restaurant or of a bar. I mean, these are very, very sophisticated businesses. And so what I always tell people is, if you don't think it takes a lot to run a, a restaurant, imagine this. If I told you I had a $12 million a year business, we had about 100 employees, we changed our whole staff twice a year. We did direct-to-consumer sales. We were in about 35,000 square feet with a tourism component. It was a seasonal business, and we were in manufacturing. We had 55 vendors, and everyone's W-2. You go, that's an impressive business. You must be busy. But if I told you, you that I own the Joe's Crab Shack in Branson, Missouri, well, you probably not think much of it. But so that's my job is, is bringing those tensions together. Uh, the Marsh Collective, we're, for those of y'all who don't know, um, we are an interesting thing. So my, me and my family feel implicated to this little place, Opelika, Alabama. We have over the last 20 years uh, restored over 300 historic properties here. We retain about 200 uh historic properties within 10 blocks in our downtown. And we we believed in this town when no one else did. And it's a Lazarus story. You know, when we started, we bought our first building for $12,000, no money down and no payments for a year. I mean, you I used to ride my bicycle on the sidewalks because you couldn't hit anybody. And there was less than $100,000 in taxable sales in our entire Main Street, just dead as a rock. What year and was that when you bought that, your first property? Our first one uh, was in 2002. And so now the first property my parents did was actually the house that I live in now. My wife and I recently purchased it back into the family. It's this great old pre-Civil War 
uh, home that was built in 1860, this big neoclassical house. And it was listed uh, right before they had me. The house was listed for $65,000 and they offered them 40 and they about tore their arm off. And they said, my grandmother cried whenever they moved in because the neighborhood was so bad. But my parents, one, uh, my dad was building uh, total cars at the time. And one car at a time, every week, we lived in a little 600 square foot apartment in, that had been put in the basement in the 40s because we couldn't live in the main house. Seven years, they restored this house. And then, um, and then they mortgaged it to get the money to go in and restore this first other little house that they did. And then, you know, fast forward, here we are 300 properties later, and now we steward an entire city block that's kind of our current project. And we've had the opportunity to go and help other people. So um, our clients are, are people of peace, you know, people that love their towns and normally family offices or, or high net worth couples. And they've gone and bought either most of or an entire town. So like one of our clients called us, he said, hey, I've never been a landlord, but I grew up in a town with 2000 people and I bought 80 buildings. Help. <laughs> what do oh I do? my word. I just like <laughs> this seems so uh, just out there. But that's what I love about Marsh Collective is you talk about something called irreplaceable real estate. And when someone calls you up, so the Marsh Collective, like the point and the function is that you act as kind of consultants for these folks who call you up and say, oh my gosh, I own a town. What do I do? I mean, where do you even start with them? Well, normally empathy because uh, <laughs> because the funnel is long to get to us. We're, it's very specialized. You can't just go hire people. We're next to one of the best architecture schools in the world. And I can't hire anybody. I mean, God, I would love to be able to hire some folks, but it's weird work, right? Because we really speak because we had to do it with our own money hmm. and, and our lives. Like if you go in a restaurant, we've done every job from the dishwasher up through the owner and the developer. We own our own construction. I mean, we do asset manager and fund management and really even family office work on top of that. That's a specialized thing, but we work in, we say that we are uh, dealers in hope. Um, I love, uh, I love the Napoleon Bonaparte um, quote that all, uh, all great leaders are dealers in hope. And so what we do is we often take people from something being impossible to being possible, to being probable. And, and we do that by bringing love to the equation. So, so here's, here's the challenge. What is irreplaceable real estate? Let's say I take you in a historic New England downtown and you have a mass general store. And we all know what that looks like, right? Masonry, two-story, you know, about five to 10,000 square feet, wood windows. I mean, gonna, as long as you keep a roof on it, it's going to be there forever. Charming, beautiful thing that everyone wants in their town. Well, let's say in that same town, you've got a Dollar General across the street. Well, if they're zoned the same and the square footage is the same and you're getting the same rent on them, the bank says those are worth the same. Obviously, they're not worth the same. If they were, the insurance wouldn't be so much more expensive on the old one. Well, why is that? Because it's built with materials we can't get anymore by people who don't live anymore in ways we don't build anymore and with entitlements you could never ask for. Mm. 
And so that makes real estate irreplaceable. And I always, you know, I always use the great example is within hotels. Some you probably have a Hilton or a Hyatt near you or something like that. If that thing was fire sold, right? If it if it sold for way below its value, you probably wouldn't be very surprised, right? Bad operator, whatever. Do you think anyone's ever going to get a deal on the Waldorf Astoria? No, there's value beyond the building. There are things that you can't get back. And so what we do is we go in and we say, hey, in lieu of taking the regular five-year perspective on these historic buildings that have been there for, you know, sometimes 200 years, we say, what if we took a long-term perspective? What if we said, what can I do that no one could undo in 50 years for the good of our city? And that's what we help our clients do. It's amazing work. That is so powerful. So you, I mean, okay, here's a question. How do people find you? Or do they buy the city after they learned that you did it? Oh, no. Well, we, uh, we're not, we're not nearly so, uh, so um, voluminous in our team as to be able to go and take on a whole bunch of extra cities. Although We've never seen something we don't believe in. I mean, we're it, it really is redemptive for us. We believe that we don't tear anything down. Like we think everything can be saved and we only buy problems in our personal portfolio. If there's stuff that's easy, that's simple, that's paint and a little bit of gutter work or something, that's for someone else. We buy dumpster fires and make them iconic. And so normally the way people come to us is that they've already bought the city and they're sweating bullets. And so they start going and trying to find other people who've bought cities. And uh, and if you're in the, the world of people who bought entire downtowns or large portions of downtowns, um, then you're probably going to end up getting plugged in and, and having a Zoom call with us or something at some point or coming and seeing us in Opelika. Man, I love that. When I was, so I, I told you that the whole family, we got the whole family sequence jackets, I mean, partially inspired by your influence, but I also have a, a, a 11 year old who's, you know, very adventurous. And so we all just jumped on board. And so I was telling them about your shoes actually. And I said, Hey, my friend Nelson has these shoes. And they were like, well, who's Nelson? And I was like, well, I think the definition of Nelson could be anti-disestablishmentarianist, which is one of their first seven spoken <laughs> words. So they knew exactly what I was talking about. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I mean, that sounds baseline what you are, but what you're doing and what I love about what you're doing and what your story and what really caught my attention was so often in real estate, we're like, man, we're focused on the bottom line. There's no way you can make money restoring irreplaceable real estate. Well, you are making another case for that. You've, you've proven that argument wrong. Um, tell us a little bit about that, about how you create profit in this and how you create a draw for folks to come and visit. Talk about that. Well, oh God, that is, this is a conversation I have all the time. So the short version of it is when I'm usually quite fired up about this, Y'all won't believe it, but I am a stoic by disposition. I'm just a passionate one. But um, if, if, that's, <laughs> if that's possible, I get fired up. I tell people all the time, I say, if you start with an empty lot and I start with four walls and no roof, I am ahead, right? <laughs> I have something there. But here, here's the problem. So so why, why, do, why do we end up that way? Well, first, we perish for a lack of vision. 
Everyone thinks that you're going to get capital and vision's going to follow. That never happens. And if you want to see proof of this, Jeff Bezos has gotten the most expensive divorce in history, is richer than God, and all he's done is copy Pitbull's entire personality, right? <laughs> Having massive amounts of capital does not buy you access to creativity. And so, right, it's just everyone's weird uncle, but with a mega yacht and oh. a yacht to follow that yacht. And so- Imagination is is often a thing. We think we can go out and build without vision. Well, no building is built without vision. You have to look at something that's not there and put it there. And the same thing with adaptive reuse, right? The con the container that um, we kind of typically operate in. You got to change the way you think about it. So first, you have to ask yourself: Is it possible that starting with something historic, which has baked-in value that has been depreciated into oblivion, and I could never get back to if I wanted to, is there something there? Is there a way that I could take that baked-in value and outperform it? So normally, we find that these structures first, because of where we're working. It's shocking what these things are purchased at. I mean, one of our clients bought 150,000 square feet of really nicely maintained, but not particularly pretty historic structures in their town for between four and $12 a foot. And we all know this story, right? These things are albatrosses. People don't know what to do with them. And so first, you can make up a lot in the fact that you can often spend less and acquire these incredible properties. But what we do is we really try and approach it with an integrated perspective all the way through. And so I'll give you a great example. My last iteration of my bar, we were in um, we were in this beautiful building that I love. We have this historic bank in our downtown and it was constructed in a very peculiar way. So basically, because it's next to the railroad tracks, the whole floor, the first floor completely floats. It doesn't touch any of the walls. And instead, it's supported on these columns that are 30 feet tall and go all the way down into the cellar, and it allows it to move, and it kept it from shaking it apart. Well, in the 80s, they came and rammed a big staircase through it, chopped it up, dropped in ceilings, knocked a couple hundred holes in the ceiling, covered everything up with paneling, and you could see just a little bit of the trim, and, uh, and, and they put some offices upstairs. Well, the offices upstairs are rented and, and they're keeping this asset alive that we have, but we knew we needed to replace that sub. So that floor system, I've never seen anything like it, was three layers of two inch dimensional wood laid across each other, subfloors, four inches of concrete, two inches of mortar and an inch of marble. Well, we peeled up the marble, cleaned it, stacked it, demoed all the way down into the cellar, carried it out, five gallon buckets up a ladder, built a new floor system while the upstairs is running. But what we did is we got to claim that as a repair. So one of the things that's a huge advantage that no one gets in new development is everything you do is an improvement. Well, a lot of our stuff is repaired. So when we put the floor back down, if we do it better, is it still a repair? Obviously. All right. Well, then what do we do about the drop ceilings? So we tear the drop ceilings out. And a lot of times what we'll do is we'll demo back to beauty. See, people treat demolition like it's this heavy handed thing. We have our smartest guys and our most gentle and attentive people on demolition. And sometimes on client work, if we're doing demo work in a really important space, me or one of our other people will go and be there on site wearing a tool belt 
making sure that we preserve the right things, that we stop at the right place. So what we did here is instead of tearing all the way back and going, oh God, all this plaster's ruined, we got all the drop ceiling out, and now we're sitting there in this incredible space, 14 foot ceilings and 22,000 board feet of plaster trim in a 2,500 square foot space. Fabulous, right? Incredible. And so what we did was we took, and I couldn't find anybody who knew how to work with the plaster. So we patched all the holes. And then I took and bought a little oscillating tool and made molds and cast just enough of a trim to fix it. Now we didn't go and scrape it out with a toothpick and all that and be conservators. Instead, we said, what's an appropriate level of stabilization that the building can wear its age that the asset can perform well, but that it can be preserved into the future. And so we make a thousand of these little decisions all the way through. And what the summation of this is, is that our cost of construction is much, much, much lower. So that job, you know, 2,500 square feet, I know everybody who's doing construction on historic properties, they're just rolling through their head. You know, that job should have probably cost us about $800,000. And we ended up spending total, total, total by the time we were all the way finished about 300 and really built an amazing space. But the reason was we took and approached it with empathy and care and love at every step. And we try and at every single little turn find the value that would be lost if we went in and we were just heavy handed. And you now that's one example. But if you take and propagate that over an entire portfolio, you will be shocked how much how much money you won't spend doing stupid stuff. I mean, that is such a metaphor for so many things, which I feel is the reason when you approach an entire city and that is your backdrop philosophy that you're able to be successful. I mean, oh. it's just rare. It's very niche and I love it. And I love how that dovetails into the way that you all do hospitality. I think you're starting to talk about that even now without saying that word, but that is a very much how you do business. Now, I think we're going to do two episodes. And in the next episode, I really do want you to want you to talk about how you got into this business and your early beginnings. It's an incredible story. But before we go there, um, I'd love for you to talk about the way that you work with your uh, your tenants and the people that you touch in, in every way. So, and, and kind of, if you can kind of pan out just a little bit, your, your town, Opelika, am I saying that right? Yeah, you're saying okay. it right. Got it right. Um, you have a master plan. How do you approach this? Or is it kind of one at a time, add on, add on from a high Ooh. level down? Ask the hard questions. Why don't oh. you? <laughs> All right. So if you go to a crappy, crappy strip mall, right? Like a class B strip mall. We all know it. If, if they're lucky, mind. they, yep. If they're lucky, they got a Ross and a Hobby Lobby. If they're not so lucky, Dress Barn's all you got. So imagine you <laughs> Wait, go there. Can we talk about the name Dress Barn? What was the person thinking? I mean, it only leads me. Oh God. I have, a, I have, we don't have time, but I have an amazing Dress Barn story um, <laughs> that I had to tell you sometime that a, an old acquaintance of ours uh, had. But so you go somewhere like that, and we think that's not particularly sophisticated development. Well, they're going to have people in leasing and tenant alignment. And I mean, there are a whole myriad of disciplines that are involved in this, right? Then you go in a downtown, which is the same thing. 
It is a complex mixed-use development, but you've got fractional ownership, historic structures, and you have a checked-out Main Street director, if you're lucky, and some guy named Bob. And that, and you're supposed to do this sophisticated work without that. So first, we view towns as mixed-use development, and this often means helping our clients and ourselves align around things, a common vision, right? So our friend Eddie Morton with uh, with Lyft Orlando has a great, great sentiment that I love. He said, you can mix almost anything in a neighborhood. You can mix race and ethnicity and age and incomes, but you cannot mix values. And so the first thing we do is we find what are the common values, right? What can you be? What should you be? And what do you want to be? If you're in the middle of a cornfield in Iowa, you are not the next Silicon Valley. Don't try to be that. In Opelika, we're an industrial city. And our city died because the twin city next to us, Opelika is about 27,000 people. Auburn's about 20,000 permanent residents and then about 45,000 because of the university and some other things. Then our whole little county is about 150,000. Well, Opelika was trying to be Auburn. We're never going to be Auburn. They're a college town. We're an industrial city. So we asked, what's the best Opelika we can be? And then what we'll do is we go and we will, with empathy and authority, try and solve the problems, right? Because if you're wondering how you get alignment around a town, if you're in the real estate business, you have a skill set that can absolutely solve people's problems, especially properties that have been inherited, that haven't been actively managed. You know, a lot of people are sitting there with a tax boat anchor around their neck and they would love to do something great with their building, but they don't understand how they can. Mm -hmm. So we do a ton, a ton, a ton of different strategies to get people aligned. But then the next thing we do is when people say you have a portfolio of leases, you don't have a portfolio of leases. You have a portfolio of people. And, you know, this is a little funky, right? Because you got to treat it like love. No one says, I hope my husband loves me an average amount. I hope he thinks I am just exactly about as good as I am. In fact, he thinks I'm entirely suitable for the job of being married to him. No, that's stupid. No one wants to live that life. People want radical love. And so you're going to, if you want to be extraordinary, you're going to have to not look ordinary. You're going to have to do some different things. So one of the things we do is we pick operators and we believe in operators and we tie our leases to operators. And the way we get the banks to come along with this is we do, typically, we find people who have the heart for hospitality and what we want to do and are the right people. And then we bring our skills and discipline and capital around it. So now you got to make the banks understand this. We do a lot, a lot of using a mechanism of a base rent with a percentage base rents on top of it that ratchets every year. This allows bankers to you know, not be drinking Maalox. But I'll give you a great example, probably best one we ever did with this. We had a kid who I love. He came to us and he's 19. He said, I want to open a coffee shop. I said, great. He said, I don't have any money and I've never run a business and I don't have a coffee maker. So I've got to find one of those. <laughs> well, like, okay. The, normally that guy has no hope, right? Snowball's chance in hell. Well, we knew him and we believed in him. So we said, okay, how about this? We'll give you 10 foot. We had this big unit. It had some problems, but it was right in the middle of Main Street. So we popped up a, a Luan plywood wall, painted it white, 
and we gave him an RV pump draining his sink into a bucket, got someone to let him borrow a uh, borrow an espresso machine. And we said, if you can, if you can steward this, if you'll, if you'll let us help you and you can make this work, we'll grow with you and let you grow in this space. So we rented it to him. It was like 400 bucks a month. I mean, nothing, but this thing wasn't performing anyway. And it was going to take a year to get anyone in. And so Wait, we rented it to doing work on the remainder of the space or. Yeah. So we're still working on it. You know, Sounds our guys like are in there getting coffee in the morning. Yeah. Okay. So that's what we did. We just chopped off the little front of it and he builds this coffee shop and he goes up to the, uh, goes up to the courthouse and says, I need a business license. And Lay said, Oh honey, you're just doing a little coffee thing. If you just tell them it's a, uh, a donation and let them name their own price, you don't need a business license. So he opened a coffee shop with no prices, <laughs> but this kid is amazing. He is radically radically gifted around hospitality now he has grown that little business the thing does a quarter million dollars a year now it is a real business they still have no prices and they're 50 percent higher than the national average for their industry i still ain't figured that one out so but well what they did is they grew into that space and then they grew and took the whole building there now they have about three thousand square feet They've renovated it three times. They built all their own furniture. But what he's done is he's taken a closer relationship with us. So I meet with him just about every week to help him on his business. And he's he sits under, under authority and accountability. And we believe in him and we've grown with him. And I tell you, that looked like it made no sense from a five-year perspective, right? Well, I'll tell you what did make sense. It is the single most cited amenity on every single one of our single family rentals and multifamily rentals. It's the biggest amenity we ever had in this town. In fact, we have three tenants that are remote workers who moved here specifically because we had a great coffee shop. Now you tell me what the reverberating effect of that on our main street was culturally for our town. And you tell me that if that isn't the definition of a high impact tenant, a keystone tenant, but it's just he's not in the middle of a mall. He's in the middle of a downtown. And when you are willing to take that perspective and take a long view, oh my goodness, you can create so much value. Man, it's a remarkable story. I love what you said about approaching this with both empathy and authority. I think we can all imagine what it looks like to approach something with no empathy, only authority. And likewise, only empathy and no authority, either of the those sides of the spectrum are completely unappealing for different reasons. So I love the fact that you, you plumb line right there in the middle. I want to wrap up this episode, but I'd love to ask you, uh, as we do, if we can tie it up with a bow is, um, you, the, the, the concept of creating a symbiotic relationship with hospitality in your development. I mean, you've mentioned that a little bit. But then getting a, a whole town behind the vision. I mean, these are these are high level questions. A lot of our listeners are, are passive investors and they're just trying to buy, you know, their first deal or their second deal or their third deal. But if you can create a conceptual on-ramp to what you do that anybody can grab hold of, how would you do that? So I, I love there's two sentiments that that I love. Um first is that there is no such thing as a non-impact investment. Every investment makes an impact. Every dollar spent anywhere is a vote and it does something to the world. So 
is how you're spending your money aligning with what you believe? But also the thing is implication, right? Look, none of us, there's no such thing as actual passive income. If it is passive, then what you're really doing is you're just paying someone to do the other part of the work. But there is work that comes with every income. Otherwise, people wouldn't get paid to manage properties, right? And everybody cites real estate as passive income. It's not. It's, it's an active form of income. All income is earned. And so what I would say is if you're looking around and you're saying somebody should do something, you're probably the somebody. And we can all bring our gifts to do this. And maybe you don't, you know, maybe you have you have capital and you have business expertise, but you don't have the social capital, right? So maybe you have the economic capital, but not the spiritual and social capital within your community. I promise those people exist. And it's never one person that changes a city. It's always a coalition of people uniting around a shared vision and loving a place. But if you can do it, if you can bring yourself to be a somewhere person, right? To shout it from the rooftops and say, if you aren't here, you aren't anywhere. You can absolutely change your community and then you can live in your investment, which is way, way better than a mutual fund. Man, that's an invitation and an exhortation. I love that. So thank you for your encouragement and just for breaking down the reality of like, you're, you're wearing the tool belt. You're wearing, you said at the beginning, you wear a ton of different hats and I think the willingness to be adaptable and to do that opens up a lot of a lot of pathways for for lasting change in a community. So thank you so much for being with us today, Nelson. I look forward to our next interview. I'd love to hear your story of uh, the inception of your entrepreneurial life. So um, we look forward to that episode in the future. Likewise. Well, thank you. And I look forward to telling you if you want to hear it, I'm I'm an open book. So great interview today. Nelson, where can people find you if they want to follow up and get in touch? Oh, my goodness. Well, I have a flip phone, so I wouldn't recommend a text, but uh, we would love to hear from you. Reach out to us on the Marsh Collective. Uh, you can look us up online, marshcollective.com, or check us out on the Redemptification Podcast. That is our forum where we have conversations around real estate and faith and what we believe is redemptive real estate work. Wonderful. Thanks again for being here. Thank you. Thank you for being with us again today. I hope that you have learned a lot from the show. Don't forget to like and subscribe. I hope you're telling your friends about the Real Estate Syndication Show and how they can also build wealth in real estate. You can also go to lifebridgecapital.com and start investing today.